0: I liked Harvey and Nancy personally and so it's disappointing to see something like that go down.
1: Sylvester was out of his deal with fantasy records. No more fighting about his image, no more sashaying around the office in a pink chiffon gown in an effort to defend his own authenticity. But he still felt he hadn't been paid his fair share of royalties. People had been telling Sylvester for years that there was something shady going on with his managers, Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts. Fantasy records publicist Terry Hindy.
0: It's very common in the record industry that people get into conflicts about money royalties are not paid, or this contract was not honored, or he said, she said, etc. That definitely went down with Harvey and Nancy.
1: Tim McKenna was an old friend and Sylvester's manager in the early days. He stepped aside when Harvey and Nancy, the real professionals, came on board.
2: But they were so untrustworthy. They were of the old school of management, the old school of record companies and all that stuff. And it finally just came to a head where Sylvester just couldn't take it anymore.
1: Sylvester looked up to Harvey, like a mentor or like a big brother. Harvey had helped develop the greatest acts at Motown Records. He believed in Sylvester when he was at career rock bottom. And he had coaxed those 70s disco hits out of him too. So Sylvester, forever the optimist, continued to believe that Harvey could never rip him off.
3: You look at record sales, you know what monies are owed you, and they're supposed to pay these amounts of monies. I mean, no one has ever, I think, given us less money than we deserve.
1: We don't know what changed, and nobody really wanted to talk about it. But in 1983, Sylvester took Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts to court. Harvey and Nancy denied any wrongdoing, But that June, a judge ordered them to pay Sylvester over $200,000 in unpaid royalties. For Sylvester, it felt like a betrayal. He wouldn't even let his friend say Harvey's name in his presence. And Sylvester's lawyer had to fight for years to get the money. But with his friend and mentor out of the picture, could he still be the fabulous Sylvester? This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. I'm Jason King, musician, journalist, professor, and chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University. This season, it's the story of the innovative, extravagant queen of disco, Sylvester. This is episode seven, Hard Up.
0: My name is Audrey Joseph. Well, my connection is multifold as a promoter of his music and a friend.
1: Audrey Joseph was a music business veteran. She'd been following Sylvester's career since he performed with the Coquettes at their train wreck of a show in New York back in 1971. She knew his work with producer Harvey Fuqua, and of course she knew his hits. In 1982, Audrey had just left a big job in New York.
0: At the time, I had just left Arista, and I was traveling across country, and I called Marty up. After several
1: years and way too much drama, Sylvester left Fantasy Records and Harvey behind. Now he was on Megatone Records, the label started by his friend Marty Bleckman and his brilliant collaborator, Patrick Cowley. But Patrick was one of the first people to die of a mysterious disease they were now calling AIDS. And Marty needed help.
0: Marty said, I need to take Patrick's body back to New York. Will you watch the label while I'm gone? And I said, sure. And I moved into Patrick's house, and Marty just went and had the house fumigated. Twice. Nobody knew what it was. We knew it was a disease. Nobody really understood.
1: Audrey Joseph showed up at just the right time for Sylvester. Disco had been a huge cash cow. And then Disco was done. And for a bunch of reasons, the record business had gone into a recession. Now in the early 80s, it was on the brink of a commercial revolution.
0: They were gonna put a radio station on television, this thing that I was asked to be part of. And I didn't do it, but it became MTV. Welcome to
4: MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo
1: video music channel. You'll never look at music the same way again. That's from MTV's first ever broadcast on August 1st, 1981. Sylvester had made music videos in the past, but they were more like marketing promos to be played in nightclubs. With the rise of MTV, music videos were becoming a major way people discovered new music.
0: After we put out the All I Need album, we decided to do a music video.
1: Sylvester and Audrey were looking to follow up on the hit single, Do You Wanna Funk? They decided to make a music video for a dance rock song called Hard Up. Hard up has a pulsing rock beat and electric guitar shredding. Think of it as R&B-influenced, MTV-era, jazzercise dance rock. The kind of song you could include on a playlist with the flash dance soundtrack or Donna Summer's She Works Hard for the Money and not even
0: skip a beat. The cover of the All I Need album had Sylvester wearing like a pharaoh's hat and it had an Egyptian kind of theme. So we wanted to have a pyramid in the video. And the problem was we were blowing up the pyramid and we only had one
1: pyramid. (laughs) The video for Hard Up is campy as hell. Sylvester's in a tiger-striped shirt. He sings and dances and throws in the occasional jumping jack. And don't forget the live snakes.
0: I am not afraid of snakes. I like snakes he however and probably every other man in that room was terrified of the snakes so i made him touch the snakes and look at the snakes and know that the snakes weren't going to bite him they weren't poisonous snakes i mean he was freaking out so yeah
1: getting a video played on mtv wasn't easy not if you were a black artist anyway take rick james he was releasing hit after hit in this era including Super Freak, which was climbing the singles charts right behind Foreigner and Kenny Rogers. Rick James was everywhere in 1981, except on MTV. He called out what he saw as a racist approach to their programming in a CBS News special report called Blacks and MTV.
5: You know, this isn't a Wizard of Oz. I mean, there are Black people here, and we make music. And we spend thousands, $100,000 on videos. And we're not doing this for the sake of because we enjoy doing it. We're doing it because it's part of the art and we're being excluded from the art. That's what's happening. We're we're, we're being sat in the back of the bus television style.
1: And it's not like Rick James was the only person who called out MTV for its apartheid-like color line. David Bowie turned his own MTV interview around and started asking V.J. Mark Goodman all the uncomfortable questions. There seem to be a lot of black
6: artists making very good videos that I'm surprised aren't used on MTV.
4: Well, of course, we have to try and do what we think, not only New York, And Los Angeles will appreciate, but also uh, Poughkeepsie or Midwest that will be scared to death by Prince or a string of other black faces and black music. That's very interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have to play the music that we think an entire country is going to like, and
1: certainly we're a rock and roll station. This explanation slash excuse that MTV was a rock and roll station has more than a whiff of Disco Sucks to it. But there was at least one black artist that MTV would eventually put on the air. And that was Michael Jackson. And only after his record label threatened to pull all of their artists, white, black, and otherwise, off MTV unless the station started to play Michael. But for Sylvester, it had something to do with the way Michael Jackson's image and music intersected. The records are
4: good. They're entertaining. They're danceable. Michael is a character and a personality of his own, which makes people automatically interested and like him because he has his own style, I think. Anyone, including myself and other people, Prince and all of these people with some sort of controversial or outrageous personality person- always interests people.
1: This combination of provocative persona and great music, didn't that perfectly describe Sylvester? So why was it so hard to get MTV to put his video on the air? Well, there are barriers and there are barriers. Intersectional artists like Sylvester have always faced multiple glass ceilings. Rapper Mickey Blanco, God, you had the Bowies and the Rod Stewart's and all of these cishet, for the most part. Well, I don't want to put Prince in that category, but to a certain extent, yeah. You have all of these cishet men who were just allowed to be as flamboyant as the sunset is pink because they weren't actually queer people.
5: Filmmaker Stephen Winter. And the fact that Sylvester opened up the door that now is tumbling out with all of these new androgynous, brilliant musicians would have been, like on one hand, yeah, I helped make that happen. But on the other hand, I'm openly queer, and they are not. They are taking everything except the burden.
1: Sylvester's new album was getting traction. The single Don't Stop climbed all the way to number three on the Billboard dance charts, just below Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. And Audrey Joseph persisted. She used her industry connections and clout, and she finally got MTV to air the video for Hard Up.
0: So we edited the shit out of it. We enhanced the color. We did all these things, and we sent it in, and they just put it on, and it was nuts.
1: He'd done it. He'd made it onto MTV.
4: I was as surprised as everyone else, but we just made a video that happened to be the one, and I was invited for Billboard magazine's convention in Los Angeles. Herbie Hancock and myself were with only black people on the panel with videos that MTV
5: accepted. Stephen Winter. Through the machinations of his team and Sylvester's incredible tenacity, he becomes maybe the third black artist to appear on MTV and the first openly gay one to appear on MTV, which is absolutely fabulous. Think about how many lives he saved by somebody happening to turn on the channel and getting a load of that. DJ Nicky Siano.
4: It meant victory. <laughs> it meant victory for the music, for people of color, for gay people. i telling you, this guy was an activist. He made change happen. <laughs>
3: I've been in love probably twice. I mean, truly, deeply, utterly in love. I mean, to the point of really losing it, being really irrational. Rick was magic. That was probably my biggest love.
1: In the summer of 1984, Sylvester was at a party, dressed in a leather skirt, a rhinestone eagle belt buckle, and turquoise jewelry. That's when he spotted a tall, blonde man across the room. Jason Williams, Sylvester's friend and former lover, was standing with him.
6: He looked over and saw a man across the room and said, I really like his looks. And it wasn't anybody that had ever been a a Sylvester type. Sylvester basically liked men that were shorter than he, what we sometimes call munchkins. And Rick was 6'1", and a natural dirty blonde, an architect, very handsome. So I walked over to Rick, I said, I have a friend that thinks you're very interesting and I'd like to introduce you. And he said, sure. And that was how the the
3: relationship started. We had such an understanding of each other and what we meant to each other regardless of what was going on around us. You know, Rick would stand there and cry because he was so proud of me, you know, doing my shows and doing my work. You know, he he said, baby, I'm so proud of you. I just don't care. I'm
1: just so proud. Sylvester's love life had never been better. But times were hard for the high-energy disco movement Sylvester had helped create. Times were changing in San
7: Francisco. The epidemic was starting to become a reality. Megatone Records' co-founder, Marty Blackman. Newsweek actually published their first article after already God knows how many people had died. And everyone was freaking out and not knowing whether to go out to the clubs because they couldn't trust themselves. And how could they go out and drink and have safe sex? And so the best thing to do is to stay home and do nothing. So our business, literally, we saw the sales drop in half overnight. And definitely into 1984, the dance, high-energy disco music business was putting the brakes on. Things had changed
6: for Sylvester, and he could see it at his shows. Fame's fickle, and the fame passed, especially when the disco era ended. The albums weren't selling, and in San Francisco, to be honest, he was a little played out journalist Robert Julian Stone. Everybody knew him and liked him, but he was not the latest new thing. He was that thing from the 70s, and he went to playing the same kind of small clubs that he had played when he was just
1: starting out. Sylvester had to do something he hadn't done in a long time. He had to think about money. In 1984, when
6: Sylvester dropped Uh, the album M1015, he debuted at Trocadero, which was a big gay disco. And the energy that night was definitely off. He was by himself with his music on tape. And before he started to sing the song, he said, boy, I sure hope this is a hit because I really need a new car, which is probably not the best way to introduce a new album. Sylvester's star was,
1: if not fallen, certainly dimmed. Playing to a backing track might be a good way to cut down on touring costs. But after having that big band with the two tons of fun and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra at the Opera House, Sylvester must have felt a little alone up there. Manager Tim McKenna.
2: Doing track dates can really wear you out. Sylvester did not like it. And yes, of course, it did pay the bills. I mean, we made lots of money doing that. You know, I hate saying stuff like that, but you do. So a a lot of times he was pretty unhappy, but he never let it reflect in his performances. And he also understood that this is what we needed to do right then.
0: You know, Sylvester didn't come from money.
2: Audrey Joseph.
0: I don't know that he came from poverty, but to garner the kind of income he garnered. Look, it wasn't just Do You Want to Funk? He had a bunch of other hits, but as it kind of dropped off... He had to learn how to just not spend the money.
5: Filmmaker Stephen Winter.
0: Well, Sylvester used
5: shopping as therapy. You know, Black people have such a troubled relationship with money in America. After so many generations of Black people being shut out, being of the generation of folks who could buy lovely things, that was very important to Sylvester. And the shopping, the purchasing of things, it was an addiction and it fulfilled a particular need. And it's a star's job to appear like a star. What better way to do that than jewels and furs and and other beautiful things?
1: Sylvester may have found comfort in worldly pleasures like shopping, but at the same time, he was finding solace in his faith.
3: He did believe in God and how he felt about
6: God was very personal to him. Martha Wash. And whatever happened between him and God was between him and God. We both loved gospel music since we were both raised on it, and that was something that he never forgot. While we were getting ready to go on stage to do a show, we would be singing gospel music. That was what we would be warming up
3: on. I'm a very religious person. I am a Christian. I don't use the word born again because I think it just means too many silly things. But I always read my Bible. And I really believe, when I talk to my mother and other people, that I really settled my soul. I really settled my relationship with Christ.
1: Background singer Jeannie Tracy.
2: Sylvester
3: loved God. We all did, but the Kojic Church was so judgmental.
1: Kojic means Church of God in Christ. And Sylvester knew a thing or two about that judgmental attitude Jeannie was talking about. He'd grown up in the Palm Lane Church of God in Christ in South Central Los Angeles. He'd found joy and a little bit of local fame singing in the choir. He'd also had his first sexual relationship with an older man from that choir. And they had turned him out as
5: a result. Sylvester had left the church When he started on his journey towards becoming a star, but he never left the church in his heart. Stephen Winter. But the returning to the physical place and dealing with the community was a very touchy subject for him because of the trauma of having been thrown out in such an undignified and horrific way as a kid. But now, in the early 1980s, Sylvester felt the pull.
1: A hunger for the comfort and community that church had played in his younger life. Jeannie Tracy.
3: He said, girl, I miss church. And I said, I do too. I said, well, if you want to go to church, we can go to Love Center and you can
1: be yourself. The Love Center in East Oakland was Kojic too. But it was no ordinary church. For one thing, it was founded by gospel royalty.
3: Walter Hawkins was the pastor, you know, the famous Hawkins Singers. And those people
1: can really sing. Even if you know very little about gospel, you might have heard Edwin Hawkins' singer's original version of Oh Happy Day. In 1968, the song became a surprising crossover hit, reaching all the way to number four on the singles chart.
5: Stephen Winter. So going to the Love Center and being embraced by the Hawkins singers, I mean, the Hawkins singers (laughs) and their extended family of this uh, church community was the greatest relief for Sylvester, as well as his tremendous joy and drawing strength from the fact that he was of these people, too, and that he was family and that he was home.
1: Award-winning actor and singer Billy Porter knows what it's like to grow up in the church and feel like you can't be accepted for who you really are. And he knows how deep that connection runs in spite of everything.
4: Well, the presence of the church was all on him, And like my mother says to me, it's like, yes, you may have left the church building, but every time you open up your mouth, it ain't nothing but Jesus. And that's what Sylvester represented for me. Who gets to claim God and why do they get to claim him? Sylvester's music was the reclamation of that. And every time he opened up his mouth, he
1: said, no, God belongs to me too. Sylvester had always been searching for community, but he also came to the Love Center for answers. Stephen Winter interviewed Sylvester's friend and confidant, Bishop Yvette Flunder, in the late 90s.
3: I think that he had two things running in him concurrently. And one was an anger at the way that he was handled, the church. And the other was almost like a sense of guilt. The guilt and shame from his childhood? Oh yeah, molested. still, and, and the guilt and shames of being as flamboyantly open a gay man as he was and being a Christian at the same time, and how those two things did and didn't agree. Sylvester. My grandmother knew I was a queen before I knew it. Matter of fact, she was one of the first persons that told me, and I denied it. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I knew in my heart. And she always told me that God loves you, he protects you, he takes care of you, he won't leave you,
1: never ever. So much of Sylvester's life was about reconciling his faith and his sexuality. They're the main ingredients of his music. Pentecostal harmonies, pulsing, passionate grooves. On his 80s records, Sylvester would sometimes include a gospel hymn, performed with stripped down, basic instrumentation, just like he was in church. And that hymn could exist right alongside tracks for the dance floor. On the compilation album, Immortal, there's a breathtaking version of the gospel standard, How Great Thou Art.
4: My God. When win, when, win, when, when I-
5: Steven Winter. I just love how Sylvester has this high-energy, megatone dance album that includes a straight-up gospel song. It creates this clear and undeniable link between the dance floor and the sanctified floor of the church, and that the joy you can feel in both of these places is of the same fire. And Sylvester understood that, and he was able to make that happen creatively is such a gift.
3: In my hour, before I go to sleep, I just always have to thank God for being good to me. In my stupidity, in my awfulness, you know, ranting and raving and carrying on, he has always taken care of me. I mean, and that's a wonderful thing for me, to have that
1: security. Bishop Yvette Flunder. He
3: always calls the gay community the children and ways in which we can help the children. He used to tell me all the times that there's so many children out there that really need to know that God loves them.
1: The community Sylvester had found at Love Center gave him the spiritual support he'd been longing for for so many years. And he wanted to try to share this feeling with his chosen family in the Castro. AIDS, as it was now known, was beginning to ravage his friends and
2: neighbors. Sylvester's reaction to the AIDS epidemic was quite amazing.
1: Sylvester's longtime friend and manager, Tim McKenna, saw how Sylvester used his celebrity to make a difference. Sylvester joined dancer Rita Rockett's Sunday Brunches that she hosted in 5B, the AIDS ward at San Francisco General Hospital. He sang for fundraisers.
2: Sylvester raised more than a million dollars. We realized that we had to raise our own money the community, and he was really into doing that.
1: Now, Sylvester always had a complicated relationship with money, and in general, he was more likely to spend money on himself, shopping, than paying his band. But on August 9th, 1985, Sylvester finally settled his lawsuit with his former managers, Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts. They gave him the publishing companies that controlled his musical compositions and Honey's overall royalty from fantasy. Sylvester left those royalties to charities, which continue to this day to receive them to fund emergency services for people in San Francisco, mostly impoverished, gay, HIV-positive patients. (laughs) (laughs) Something had changed. His scope had widened from himself and his fabulousness to his community and survival. Coming up next time on the season finale of Sound Barrier, Sylvester.
7: God, you guys, this is the most commercial thing I think we've ever done. Let's try to shop it to the majors. And Warner Brothers was like, yeah, we want this. Sylvester is on the verge of a major comeback. And that record went out and just had legs. And the radio promotion behind it was strong. And bingo, we were off and running again. He's pulling out all the stops at the Castro Theater.
4: I'm pulling it all out because it really has to encompass 10 years of my life in the music business. There's actually been more, but I'm only owing up to 10.
1: But it's dark times in San Francisco's gay community. Not to be overly morbid, but this might be my last album. That's next time on the season finale of Sound Barrier. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer. and Karkit is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Shrikashen, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Elena Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on
5: Spotify.